0: Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. This is Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, take it away. To the start us off today.
1: Right. Well, in honor of today's episode and topic, I thought I'd have an apropos idiom. So here we go. Drop it like a... Hot potato. Well, you could. That would be one way of looking at it. <laughs> I was thinking of... Dropping it like that subscription to a previous podcast that you listened to and were subscribing to on Patreon.com but no longer really listened to. So drop that subscription and maybe consider (laughs) contributing to the W Podcast at Patreon.com, a podcast that you do listen to right now and you find to be useful, entertaining, and helpful in your everyday comparison and fingerprint life
0: that's one hell of an idiom. We, we may have to workshop that to shorten it up a bit, but uh I like it. I like it. All right, and for me, I you know actually heard a dad joke that uh, really tickled me, so I thought I I'd, I'd kind of do a quick re return to an older uh intro format. Um Glenn, uh, which is heavier, a gallon of water or 10 gallons of butane? <laughs>
1: Well, uh, on the surface, it would appear, of course, the be, well, all right, I don't know if the butane is, all right, I- I'll say the butane.
0: No, 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 It's it's, it's got to be just the one gallon of water, because uh, as we all know, um, no matter how much you have, butane is a lighter fluid. <laughs> yeah, that's a, just a little chuckle, you know, but... Um, <laughs> All right. Well, um, like uh, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, I managed to sit down with some examiners when I was teaching up in the Boise area. Uh, examiners from the Idaho State Police and uh, assorted areas, and a couple from uh, the St. Louis area that were up for the class. Um, so. We're going to just a uh, quick cut over to that discussion, and then uh, when uh, that's over, we'll come back, and Glenn and I will just spend a little bit of time uh, talking about uh, the topics that came up that night. Uh, so let's cut over to there. All right, so uh, like I said, I'm uh, here in Meridian, Idaho, which is just west of Boise, and uh, done with day two of the exclusionology class I'm teaching up here Great group of people from the Boise, Idaho State Police area, a little suburb Nampa outside of there, and a couple of examiners all the way up from uh, St. Louis. So I got some of the people here in the room with me, so I want to introduce Tara, Caitlin, Whitney, and Nick. Uh, So why don't you guys all say hi to the podcast people?
2: My name is Nick Craven, and I work with Idaho State Police.
3: And I'm Caitlin Schuler, and I work for the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department.
4: I'm Whitney Betzel and I also work for St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. I'm Tara Cahoe and I work for the Nampa City Police
5: Department.
0: All right. Welcome guys. Uh, we're, we're all kind of getting used to the microphone setup. Uh, so if there's any kind of weird noises or or gaps in the, in the the discussion here, it's, uh, it's, it's cause just we're all kind of getting used to, to um, a mic. I didn't bring my, My old school mic where i can just set it on the table and everyone can talk i because i wasn't expecting necessarily to interview a group of people i just bought brought my mic so i could record with glenn where it's usually just me talking so anyway um i want to start out asking you guys so far we're two-thirds of the way through the class there were a lot of frazzled faces at the end of a long set of comparisons today but that's you know that that's pretty standard but um We've also gone through just a ton of information, uh, especially the first day is a lot of just download of research and concepts and ideas and definitions and everything like that. Uh, so just kind of wanted to start out with asking you guys initial thoughts on you know, what you've heard so far, the comparison exercises, uh, things you're already prepared to take home and try to put in changes or adapt for your own agency, uh, anything like that. So who wants to start?
3: So I what I really like about the class is that we get to hear from other examiners the features that they see in the prints as well as what we're seeing. And it's it's good to hear that maybe somebody would have marked it inconclusive or excluded it. Maybe they would have ID'd it and kind of why they went down that path in that decision. I also really like that getting a new perspective kind of on exclusions. Uh, Eric talks a little bit about distortion and other features to look for besides just the minutiae, and I think that really helps experienced as well as non-experienced examiners to really focus on maybe something else and um, a new way to explain maybe their decisions.
4: Uh, what I really like about the class so far is the concept of looking at exclusions as a separate thing versus looking at them as we do identifications. And so for me, it's kind of wrapping my head around that concept and thinking about exclusions in a completely different manner than we think about when we make an ID. So for me, that's something that's a great take-home from this.
5: I think it reiterates uh, how much importance and time you need to spend on analysis of your latents before you move further into... Uh, comparison so you can note the the different distortions you see which were brought up in the class
0: yeah some of those distortions were crazy right like the one today with the twisting was insane and then the one this morning the the pressure pushed a right loop into being a left loop i think that took everyone off guard and like oh so basically pattern is is useless now so it can be anything um (laughs) there's you know, like I say in the class there's when we're looking at things that are distorted, looking for distortions, I ask what pattern do you see? And by the end of that, everyone is so disillusioned <laughs> with with the uh, the patterns being able to change with distortion uh, that basically something that is so clearly a like a low count loop, someone suggests, oh maybe it's even a whirl because you know who can trust anything anymore?
2: Yeah, I think that's a a good thing to take away from this class as well is that you can't always trust the first-level detail, and I think a lot of us will use the first-level detail right away to go right to a potential print, but when it's not there, it can very easily be, well, not very easily, but sometimes could be a different uh, pattern type that you weren't expecting. And so I think it's a good idea what Eric brought up is even though you might be sure it's a loop, it might not be a bad idea to check some of the other fingers, and even at that, maybe a left loop as opposed to a right loop and just just to be safe, because it's better to probably be safe than sorry when it comes to exclusions.
0: Right, because before you exclude, you compare
2: how many fingers. You exclude all ten, you exclude all 10 before more. you truly exclude uh, someone from 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 being a potential candidate. All
0: right, exercises so far. Uh, you guys you guys were powered through a bunch today. There's even better ones. Um, I put air quotes up. Um, <laughs> Uh, tomorrow, so hopefully you guys get a good night's rest and can be prepared to tackle those uh, in the morning. Uh, any thoughts you might just want to share on the on the exercises uh, so far? Um, good, but hard, too hard, too much. Like, what, I, I mean, be honest. What are your thoughts?
2: I, I think at first they they seemed a lot harder than they were, uh, but afterwards I did feel good about them, even though, uh, I mean, I probably could have done some, I don't know to say, say better, but um, looking back, you know, with hindsight, it's a little bit easier to to see what you may, may have missed. But I, I think I do feel more confident now after having gone through that and having done relatively well, I think. So okay. confidence in that regard.
3: Uh, yeah, I think that the, every one of the examples that we did really showed each aspect of what the lecture taught us. And something I really took away was uh, rotating, something that you might think goes one way. If you flip it upside down, it it actually might be right there in front of you. So uh, that is something that I'm going to use in casework in the future.
4: Yeah, to piggyback off of that a little bit, uh, just flipping the exemplars upside down and just using a fresh set of eyes to kind of break that mold of, this is how I think it goes, and I know it goes this way, but it, it's just not fitting, and just that different perspective can totally just. Oh my gosh, there it is.
0: Uh, yeah, Glenn and I were talking about this in a recent episode, and about how that was a big thing that Pat Wertheim taught. Is is uh, after if you can't find it, try something to change your mindset. Just take turn the exemplars upside down, turn the latent upside down, but also really turn the latent whatever rate way, way it needs to go until you find it. And Nick, you said you even had some success with that. You know, you're. I saw you working on the same one for a while. I walked over up, pick up all your exemplars, flipped them uh, 180 degrees. I was like, "All right, go to town." And what about five? A little bit, maybe a little more. Five minutes later, you finally came across the one that uh, that was the match, and and there you go. You had a, a, a free, a, a new enough view of the latent that you were able to spot it. While before, your eyes may have just kept glancing over the same area. Where, where it could, where it could have been, but you weren't really recognizing that. But then with it upside down, you were just, it, cause we know how it is. Looking at latent prints upside down, or even just fingerprints upside down, seeing a fingerprint upside down feels weird. It makes that, you know, that your kind of neck bulge twitch, cause you're like, this is wrong. But, um, that can sometimes help during comparisons.
2: Yeah, I think just a, a fresh perspective or just looking at it from a different angle can really help. Cause yeah, I, I was looking at the same latent over and over. I, I rotated it 360 and just kept looking at all the different areas and uh, all the areas I suspected it and just nothing was happening. Air came over, flipped it. I went through about, I don't know, six or seven of the e- exemplars and I saw an area that looked good i I rotated the latent to kind of match that area, and I found my target group within you know seconds of having rotated it right, and it just everything just popped and and it was right there and just had missed it
5: and Tunnel vision is a big thing you you gotta watch your mindset when you're looking at something and you're thinking to yourself repeatedly it's a couple bifurcations or and you just get set set in that mindset and you're looking specifically for that when you're dealing with ridge endings. And you completely miss the features in that latent.
0: All right. So last question here. Is, so far, I again, mean, we're not done yet. But so far, if there's one thing, if you were had the power and could take and, uh, take anything back to your agency and make a single change to how your agency currently works, uh, what would that be? Again, not necessarily going to make the change. You know, this, I'm hoping. I mean, hope no one hears this as stepping on any toes, but just you know, if if you uh, had had the power to uh, to take something away, what, uh, um, what aspect of the class do you think uh, that would be?
3: Well, Eric, you are the one that told us that we should have a core and a delta to make or an exclude, or, I'm sorry, right. either or, uh, a core or a delta to exclude, and I think that even just doing the few examples that we have had, that it has been proven that it's a lot easier to exclude and make an actual exclusion decision um, with one of those features. So I would like to take that back to my agency and maybe implement that. And hopefully it will help eliminate the erroneous exclusions that we have. Uh,
0: So in our previous discussions, you guys have a lot of new people. You're really overall on average young experience level of uh, uh, examiners in your agency. And, um, you were saying how a lot of, especially trainees have these erroneous exclusions come up and, uh, yeah, I think, well, first off, I think it, it if you guys can ever go back and look at the erroneous exclusions from before and just kind of get a feel for how many of them had cores and deltas versus not, uh, uh, cause it's not going to be all of them. There's still erroneous exclusions that happen with cores and deltas. That's, that's just the way it is. It's just overall fewer, at least from the white box paper. Uh, but no, that'd be really cool. And in my opinion, again, and I've been teaching this for a while, it's, it's not that you can't necessarily do it. It's that the risk of error is much lower. So to reach accurate exclusion decisions, I think it's better to have a core or Delta, uh, in the print. So, uh, no, that's, that's great. That's great. Thanks. Uh, anyone else have one, uh, to add in?
4: Uh, our agency actually only reports out inconclusive exclusion or identification. Um, we're more kind of like a 1.5 versus a shop one, shop two thing.
0: More on the one side a
4: bit. Yeah, a little more on the approach one side. Um, so for us, I think it would be beneficial to maybe look at implementing the same source inconclusive versus the different source inconclusive decision. I think that. Generally, we have something that we're leaning towards when we report it out, but a lot of times it is for better exemplars too. So, just having that option in our back pocket would be beneficial too. Uh,
0: yeah, so the, uh, in the class this week, I'm having people uh, use those new OSAC terms: the support for same source, support for different source. Um, support for different source is tough right now because the our thing, our discipline hasn't really coalesce onto what that means or when to use it. And I think part of it is also because as a whole field we haven't necessarily decided on what an exclusion is. So now it's hard to then decide, well, what's almost an exclusion? So we kind of need to set one before we set the other. And then support for same source. Uh, My old agency, and just even in regular casework, it's not like a very common everyday thing. Um, I, I think... Uh, I would usually deploy that, I don't know, maybe once every other month. Um, uh, sometimes less, sometimes more, depending on the case and whether you find one that meets that criteria. So, uh, in, again, in my opinion, I think that one is, is more reserved for more of those special cases where it's right on the line. Uh, and, and it's tough to decide between, and no, it's just not enough at all. Or yeah, it's totally enough. There's only a few that fall in that, in that middle ground, but they can be helpful information in some cases. You, you, it's just, it's hard to know. And I think was it you guys were saying that you, you put that in your notes. No, that was, that was you guys. So in Idaho State Police, they will put that in their notes at this point that it's close, but not enough to call an ID. And it doesn't necessarily come up for the detective or the prosecutor unless there's more discussion along those lines.
2: Yeah, if we we have a, a statement or a conclusion that we can say that it's inconclusive due to the latent, and when we do that, we need to say which finger. And a lot of times we might put, you know, seven, eight points are in common. There's some correspondence, but not enough to actually call an identification and that won't get reported out, It'll just be reported out as inconclusive due to the latent. But if the officer investigator, whoever wanted to know that, they'd have to actually look at the notes and figure out what we're trying to say. So to me, it kind of feels like we actually are saying that there's some support for same source, but we're not officially saying that, I think. And then on the, on the flip side of that, if we have one. Where there's no corn delta or it's the side of a finger or, you know, could be from a palm and we're not sure. We might still call it inconclusive to the latent if the exemplars are good, but that one might be more the, you know, support for for different source because we either didn't find it or it's just not there. But we can't exclude because there's not anchor points, landmarks, whatever to actually effectively exclude without the chance of being wrong.
0: Yeah, and exactly. And that's part of the reason I think why it's so important is what like this draft that OSAC has out is having this language ready for examiners, agencies to use. So there isn't any kind of confusion in the, from the customer's end as to like what side of things we're, we're on. Are we right in the middle or leaning one way or the other? And, um, hopefully this document goes through the draft process, and the review process pretty quickly so it can be out and, and, uh, so agencies everywhere can have like, all right. This is, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to say this, say it this way and then we're all doing it the same way and everyone can start getting used to a common language.
5: Uh This might be a little off the topic, but working for a smaller agency where we have myself who does all the processing and comparisons and then a supervisor who helps uh with verifications and when she can that, I think educating our administration a little bit and letting them know why it's taking us so long to get full completed reports out because we need to take more time with the exclusions and all the comparisons.
0: Uh, Absolutely. I think that's a, a big thing is it's so rare, even in a big crime lab, for people higher up to be from the latent print unit if you have that you're really lucky because that's not the commonest of things but um even if you're a small agency where the crime lab is just a handful of people and you're not even doing the full services you're only doing a couple things uh, for your agency and everything else goes up to the state or the county or whatever having them having the sworn staff understand why you're doing it, what you're doing, what you're trying to do, the importance of verification of the reviews of the reports, like all this stuff, procedures, all the stuff that goes into what a crime lab does. And it can be really tough. And, and how they, I mean, they seem to get it when it pertains to their officers and all the training and, and everything that has to go into what they're doing, use of force and, and tactics and all this stuff. Um, why certain things take a long time to do. Uh, but forensics, it's it just so seems removed from their world, uh, anymore that, uh, yeah, that can be really tough. And, and it, it's great that, uh, that your agency, I mean, I, I think part of it is just being, um, lucking out into having a class just down the road from, from your agency. Um, but I mean, you guys, it's, it's rare that you guys get sent out of state, right? Yeah when it's it does it does come to town. Absolutely great to take advantage of it while it's here. So, I'll uh, move uh change gears here a little bit from talking about the class to just talking about latent print topics in general. That was kind of a, a transition uh from, from Tara there of 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 uh kind of about the class but then about bigger things. Uh so we just got back from dinner at Sockeye, right? It was a nice little place uh here in in the Boise area with some sockeye salmon and, and a nice beer selection and cheese curds and, uh, fingers, finger steaks, um, which are like little strips of steak that have been deep breaded and deep fried. So yeah, um, I can get behind that. Um, (laughs) it turned out pretty good, but we, we talked shop, you know, basically through most of there with some other distractions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, but, uh, uh, the, the, my, my favorite restaurant game, uh, included, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, we can kind of revisit some of those topics or bring up new ones, uh, uh, you know, whatever kind of, I don't know, concerns you guys have for the field, questions, confusion, or the ideas you think we should totally move f- forward with, uh, just, you know, general latent print people talking late in print stuff. So, uh, where do you want to start? Tara?
5: I am kind of curious. I'd like to know what software other agencies are using to process prints uh, via the computer, versus what the percentages. Maybe just using the glass.
4: Um, our agency actually mostly does under the glass comparisons. We can put things on screen. We use Photoshop, um, but generally, it's just to blow them up so we can look at the features a little more clearly and and do a side by side comparison that way just to kind of confirm what we've been seeing under the glass. So most of our stuff is done under the glass.
2: At that host, Police, We primarily do things on, on screen. Uh, we use 4 a to store our images. And then when we're comparing them, we'll pull them into Photoshop and do the comparison that way. And I, I kind of prefer the on the screen versus uh, on the glass though. I have had training in, in, in using the glass, but I like the screen option cause it's easy to figure out where I'm at. And I can always come back around or if I need to mark something like, well, it's a maybe point and I want to revisit or, or, you know, maybe some, I'm not confident it's an actual point. I don't have to, you know, sit there and keep counting it or look for it in the, in the known where I know exactly where it is on the, on the screen. It's not as easy to get lost, I think. So I, I do prefer the screen to glass.
3: Um, I would actually like to ask, uh, for those agencies that do on screen comparisons, how they deal with palm prints because they are larger. Uh, is that easier to not get lost in? Because for me, when I look at something on screen, I think it's easier to get lost looking at palms and, um, not as much fingers. But so do you guys have an issue with that?
2: I don't, I don't think I have any problem. Searching or or comparing uh, palms on the screen, I I don't think there's anything. But you talking about like searching wise or as uh, searching, I don't feel like I have any problem. I feel like I can rotate things just fine and put things in the orientation that I want to. And and like I said, just marking a point and kind of knowing kind of where I'm at. And then I have to like refine it, or if I accidentally move my pointer and I got to figure out where I was and then find it on the, on the known. I mean, I just like this. It's right there and I know exactly where it is. And, and, um, like I said, then rotate it and keep going that way, I guess.
5: I actually with palm prints, I like doing them with the glass because I feel it's easier to take the palm print and whip it around real quick and turn it different angles. And just to follow kind of the Ridge flow when I'm dealing with the palm print, cause there's so much information in it. Uh,
0: so for me, um, right now with the, uh, the company I'm working for right now, everything is on screen. There is literally like no paper in the office. So we don't even have that option. So, um, Uh, everything's uh, on screen and uh well you you learn quick to adapt and to to go with it uh with photoshop um i've talked here and uh, about the class i teach and about some of the other stuff i've been working on in photoshop to make that process easier and actually might show you guys here after we're done with the recording bit kind of what i've been working on um but uh i've I find it just easy, like you said, to keep your place, to mark a bunch of points in the latent and then go on the hunt. Now for palms, I think two things. First, if your screen's big enough, then you don't really get lost because you got, (laughs) you can, you can have them both up there and see plenty of information. Um, but the other thing that's, that I like to do, um, or generally like to do when I have the option is to have the exemplars printed out and the latent on the screen. Now, a lot of people aren't used to that or haven't tried it or tried it a couple of times and didn't like it. But I would tr- say, try again to try to get used to it and see how it goes then. Uh Because uh I can really quickly mark out everything in my latent and then I don't lose anything, it's all it's all there. I, you know, I, I don't have to poke holes in the paper or or uh or anything. I just the latent's all marked up. And then I'm on the hunt and holding the exemplar in my hand, I can spin it like a tarot said. I can spin it, turn it, you know, get the palm to kind of go whatever way it needs to be. And I'm also seeing where I'm at in the exemplar palm. Um and then if I find the right area that I want to do further comparison on. Then I can bring that in side by side and kind of go from there. Uh, just having that, that thing handy and able to move and turn so easily, uh, I think is, is a pretty helpful tool and, and really difficult to replicate on screen.
2: Well, I know for me, when I print out a, a 10 print card to then scan it in, a lot of times I won't go back to the 10 print card, but I do know that some of our, some of my colleagues will keep the 10 print card to do just that and rotate things to, as, as necessary just to, or do a quick search. Like if they're, you know, again, before uh Eric's class, so if you see a loop, you know, you look for the loops and then go from there first, but I, but I still will do that in, in Photoshop. Like, you know, there's a little navigator window kind of like in the bottom right hand corner that I'll kind of keep up and I can see I mean, you can't see exactly what the print is, but you can tell lo- loops versus whirls and things like that. And so I know if I can just slide over to that one quick, you know, I know there's a loop and number five, I can just jump to that really quick and and go from there. Uh, and with Palms, I mean, there's a rotate tool in in Photoshop and I just spin that thing around until I think I got it in the right orientation and then, you know, pull up the the exemplar and, and, and go from there or, you know, maybe even spin the exemplar depending on, uh, you know, what I'm looking at.
3: Okay. So currently, we do not uh, verify any APHIS searches. We trust that we have trained our examiners well enough that they know uh, whether something is an ID or an exclusion and, or a hit or no hit in APHIS. So we don't have our verifier go back through the candidate list and see if they missed something or didn't miss something. So I was just wondering if other agencies... Do verify their AFA stuff and if they think that that's beneficial.
5: Since our agency is uh, so small, we have AFIX so we can search a local database and I'm the one who enters the prints and sees the candidate list when it returns. And if my supervisor enters prints, she sees the candidates and then that's, we make the decisions. There's, um, every once in a while we'll have, we'll consult each other on a candidate that comes back. So. I, we don't have any verifying.
2: Yeah, we won't, uh, we won't go back and have a verifier look at the candidate list, but we do verify everything. So if someone does call a hit, that does get verified completely all the way through. Um, or if there's a situation like there's been a few times where, uh, someone's run AFIS and asked, asked my opinion that, you know, if, if they think it's good or not. And we'll do stuff like that. But no, no one comes back and looks the full candidate list. We did drop it down to 15. We were at 30 at one point. We chose to drop down to, to 15 because uh, we we pulled our, our numbers for well we would search just Idaho first and then go win the Western identification network if oh, it yeah. and then and then we'd go on to FBI after that um, but we got the list of um, the hits from AFIS over over a short period of time I can't remember uh, the the time frame that was and it number one candidate was like 96% of the time and then it would go from like 2 to 3 would be just a few percentage and then it would just drop drastically after like 8 and then there was maybe one or two past like 15 uh and so we just determined that it's you know cost benefit type of a thing that 15 is the magic number we can always request more if need be uh if we think we need to um but we cut it off at at 15
0: All right, there were some faces being made over here from the St. Louis uh, folks, so let let me swing the microphone over that way.
4: We currently have a 30 candidate list for our Missouri searches, and then an additional 20 for NGI, which is fixed. It's a fixed amount that the state has set for our NGI list, so that number we can't change, but our Missouri candidate list, we could request that to be changed, and I hope that we do, because it's quite large. So to touch on the number
3: of candidates that we have, we do have 30, but I will say that I have in multiple instances had the 20th, the 23rd candidate be the actual hit in APHIS. So I don't necessarily think that we should reduce the list. However, I also think it's very dependent on the features are searching and how accurate they are. So it kind of just depends on who's in putting the print into the system.
5: With our database being just AFIX, uh, we started with a 15 candidate list and we actually decreased it to 10 for us because we, we are searching a smaller database. Uh, if those latents don't hit on potential candidates, then we send them over to the state so the state can run them through the much bigger databases.
0: All right, I'm going to blow your minds. <laughs> So, uh, a couple years ago, I was the, the latent lead of the update that we got in Arizona, and part of that was, all right, let's figure out how many we should search for the candidates, but also um, our reverses come back on a threshold basis. Let's review what the threshold should be. Years ago, uh, I mean, every agency in the state of Arizona was getting... Between 50 and 300 reverse candidates a day, depending on how the size of the, like, smaller agency will only get like 50. The biggest agencies were getting like 300. Um, so, uh, running the numbers, having people look at like, uh, 10, 15, 20, uh, candidates through the state agency and then the NGI. We don't have any local, uh, databases to search. Um, came back that on the cost-benefit ratio, first let me say, if you search 30, you're eventually going to get a hit on number 30. However, if you search 50, you're eventually going to get a hit on number 50. If you search 200, you will eventually get a hit on candidate number 200. So just saying, well, I've gotten a hit at that number before, well, well, yeah, but that's true no matter what number you pick. You, you know, so you might as well go bigger, go, go for 50, uh, candidates. Um, cause you will get more hits with 50 than with 30. However, you do a lot more work. And then is that all that work worth, work worth it? Um, so we got down the strategy that I worked with Phoenix PD on and from all their work seemed to work really well is, uh, first of all, our system would do an auto-code, and had a, re- a pretty good auto-code. So we would uh, hit the auto-code button, don't even look at the latent, and just launch it for one candidate. And if it hit, hey, you're done. You didn't have to do any markup, you didn't have to figure out the pattern, you didn't have to do anything. It just, it just found it, because 96% of the time, for you guys, was, but
2: it, was relatively
0: high. it was the first candidate. And this is, again, auto-coding, so may, there may be some noise that's affecting it, but most of the hits came back with that, with auto-coding, first candidate. However, if that didn't hit, then we would wipe it clean, start fresh with a manual coding, search it again for five. And then with that same coding, since our system uh, allowed to launch straight into NGI without having to recode, use that same manual encoding to launch through NGI for another five. And um, great success acknowledging, yep, there's some that we're going to miss but it's not very many because of how good the matches have gotten now. So imagine that, imagine a world where most of the, like um oh 20 30% of your searches they hit without even have to do anything. You just auto code launch and then the rest of them only 10 candidates total from the two databases. Um but and I'm pretty sure the FBI has even gone down I'd have to double check, but I really do think it's now five, even when they're searching their own database, because they just found that after five, it's, it's really just almost nothing. Um, such a low chance that it's, it's not necessarily worth it for every case. Um, when such a low percentage are actually going to hit. Anyway, what, what are you guys thinking? Is, is, is five making you kind of clench and being too nervous?
2: I, I don't remember what the percentages were specifically, but I, I believe after like five to seven, five to ten somewhere in that ballpark, it it definitely was on the extremely low side. Like I I, I wanna say it was like less than one percent of the time there was hits beyond uh, beyond five or especially beyond ten. but like I said, I don't know the exact numbers off offhand.
0: And I would say that this is based separately on every system. So your system may perform differently than the one that I was testing on. So the moral of the story here isn't just go down to five, but like test your system to see what it can do. Can it go down to five and still do really good results? All right, great. But if it can't and you have to only go down to 10, then okay, then you're only down to 10. Um But I really think agencies overall don't test enough their APHIS system or even the reverses. If you get just back dozens every hour all right let's let's take a look at our hit rate on reverses and let's up that threshold a little bit so we're not weeding through as much noise and we maybe get our hit rate on reverses from one percent maybe up to like i don't know three or four percent um because you're cutting out so much work and only losing just a couple of the ids
3: yeah i think that currently missouri as a state is actually working on our threshold and changing it uh but i think It's based on agency, based on how many candidates you get back. So I think if we can make a decision overall to lower it or decide on a specific number of candidates that will be returned, I I just don't think people can get to that agreement of, because you always had the outlier of, oh, well, I hit on candidate 30, and so we shouldn't ever change it. So I just think that people do need to do the research and get that out there to those people that are holding on the last thread, you know. So uh, we do, as a community, need to you know put in the time and the work and the effort to get those numbers and make a change.
0: The, the thing I always say to that person is, Oh, you hit on 30? Well, that means that there's hits that you're missing at like 31. You, you need to do 40 candidates instead. And if they can agree, if you, they're like, Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Then you're like, then maybe let them try that for a while. Then you know what? You're missing some more. There's some more hits down at 50 because there are, there literally are on a microscopic scale. There are hits sitting there at candidate number 50. And, but eventually you get to the point of, well, no, that's just ridiculous. It never happens that low. Well, it does happen sometimes, right? Well, yeah, but it's just such a low chance. Like, exactly. But it's also such a low chance at 30 and 29 and 28. So let's let's find a point where it becomes from insanely low to just kind of low and maybe put the threshold somewhere on that part of the curve.
4: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think our 30 candidate list is a little excessive. Yeah, it, it- you can get a hit down there, but it happens once every couple hundred cases. So does that really benefit us in the long run? I just like to say I feel really lucky
5: now that I only have to look at 10 <laughs> because when we had 15, it drove me nuts. Uh,
0: that's awesome. And and let me tell you, when you get on to five, that's uh, even better. Um All right. So uh, what other questions do you guys uh, have for us to to throw around the uh, the the tiny and increasingly warm hotel room.
5: <laughs> I'd just like to revert back to uh, when we were talking about verifying Aphis hits, and I had mentioned that we don't verify. We do not verify Afix candidates. Uh, we do verify all of our comparisons, though.
0: Right. So if it's a if it's an ID, it gets verified, even if it came out of APHIS. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Most people understand uh, when when they say that. Um. So well, let me ask you guys uh, a question then. So there's been a lot of talk, a lot of work done, especially over the past you know, three, four, five years, on computer models that spit out some sort of number for an identification. I see some wrinkled foreheads and pursed lips here. Um. Um, there's the Army Crime Labs version, FR Stat. Uh, there's a new model that's coming out of, uh, Switzerland that, um, I think we've mentioned in the podcast before. If you email, uh, Christophe Champeau, at least before, I, I, I don't know if it's still, uh, the invitation is still out there. You can get access to try it out, kind of see what you think, how it works. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what, you know, some common examiners from, big, small, local, state agencies uh have are thinking about not just any one model in particular, but overall the concept, uh, but then maybe some of the specifics of you know what you've seen out there uh and how that's working. So who wants to Okay, Nick, all right, here we go.
2: So I'm I'm actually not at all opposed to using any kind of uh, a model. Uh, in fact, we sent a couple of our examiners to the Army Crab Lab a couple of years ago to uh, learn from Swafford and uh, those from the Crime Lab, and we actually got a copy of FR Stats in in our lab facility. We have not yet validated it. Uh, we've had some discussions on it, and um, we 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 go back and forth a little bit, um, and, and if, whether or not we're gonna we're gonna pull it on. I think when we when we do have some time. Maybe in the near future, here we will consider it. I would like to see that going forward. I, th- I think it does add something to it. I like the fact that it is. It, if we were to use it, it would be after the ID has been called by both the the primary examiner and the verifier, and it's just a nice thing to add out at the end. That's a number that says, "Well, hey, we've we've identified it." Well, then also in this model that shows that, you know, do that score. It's above what you would like to see, and it's a from what I understand, it's a very conservative score. And uh, I think it's just something that adds to adds to it. Um, I think there are some people that are a little bit afraid because of the the number and the stats behind stuff. And, and I think even myself, I'd like to do more uh, understanding that stuff. But I, I think I think it's kind of an inevitability in the future. And so I think might as well get going with it beforehand until you know something comes down and now we're forced to learn it as opposed to preemptively attacking it, if you will.
0: Yeah, being on the, the, the front of the wave instead of under the wave. Yeah.
5: I think it's definitely something to learn about, look into, and start considering because uh the world of latent examining is changing constantly. And you look at the other areas of forensics, and we've got a little bit of gray area when we do examinations and comparisons. And I, I think we should be able to maybe use that little bit of gray area to help maybe Explain uh, some potential conclusions.
0: And that's a good point to bring up as we're talking about the gray area because everyone thinks about using these kinds of models or stats or numbers, or whatever, to talk about how good the ID is. But the other half of that is using this on comparisons where you don't reach an ID. You just see some similarities, but it's not enough for an ID for you. But what would the model say? And can that like we were talking about yesterday, the third part of low tripartite rule provide some support for uh, some sort of association, but not the full strength of an identification or or a higher score in a model. Does uh, St. Louis have any uh, opinion on uh, this kind of stuff?
3: Well, I'm not really a big math person, so <laughs> I I do think that statistics are coming into our science and that we do need to accept it, but I also think that a lot a lot of research really needs to go into it and they really need to figure out what these numbers mean because I think that they can be taken in the very wrong way and people can use them to essentially hurt our science. Merely because people don't understand statistics to a lot of people is just a lot of mumbo jumbo that <laughs> they just don't understand. And so, I mean, I'm kind of one of those people where I, to me, statistics don't necessarily mean uh, what we would like them to say, just like you're saying with to give a percentage of how accurate something is, uh, especially because human error plays a lot into it. It is us making a decision that I think we need to do a lot more research into what other effects. I know that they have done some, but I think that before we completely roll it out there and people start really using it, it needs to be completely understood.
5: I think I agree. There needs to be a whole lot of research, um, done but on the other side of it i think it would be interesting when you have yes we know fingerprints are unique but when you have that cluster of minutiae that is very rare if you can give that a little extra credit than a regular delta or some ridge endings from the bottom of a loop that could help conclusions also
2: well one thing i do want to uh I wanted to add into that is I I think that while yes the research needs to be done and and, uh you know it is going on. I think there has been a lot of good things that has come out. It's gonna be ever changing and so I think that I think even I think even Henry Stafford said it himself that, you know, he's got the FR stats right now, but he's expecting something to come from, you know, something better to come down the road. And I think, you know, when is it ever going to be to the point where it is the best, you know, we need to maybe start from somewhere and then see how it works and, and, and go from there. And I I kind of look at it as like with, with sports too, there's a lot of sports analytics out there. And, you know, you have some people that are for sports analytics and some people for not sports analytics. But I think I like the fact that you can kind of combine them with the, the, the human element with it as well as the, 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 the statistical part of it and, and find that happy medium. But I think, you know, we're always going to be trying to improve and, and you got to start somewhere. And so maybe, maybe now is the time to, start getting into that a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree on a couple things here. First with the research, but like Nick was saying, there's a lot that's already been done out there, but there's still also a lot left to do. Um, one question I've always had is, is how is this going to affect our accuracy? I doubt it, but there's a non-zero chance that using a specific a particular model can just overall have a negative effect on the examiner accuracy. Um, well, we don't want that. We, like, we don't want to get less accurate because we're using this new tool. Um, it's probably not going to cause that, but we should at least make sure that it's not <laughs> going to cause that. Um, and then uh, there's also a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding about the things that are out there. Uh, what Cedric's is now working on is just publishing some new stuff on. Is very different than what uh, Christophe Champot and the people in Switzerland are doing, which is very different than what Henry Swafford is doing. Uh, Terry, you were talking about how unique a certain set of features are. Well, FRStat has no way of telling you that. It will. It just can't. It cannot tell you that at all. So, uh, even talking at the California State Division conference here just a few weeks ago, I was talking with a really experienced latent print examiner who who you know knows a lot about statistics and, and that kind of stuff. And they were even um, thought that the FRStack could do that, was being compared to a large database of fingerprints. And it's just not. It's it's only comparing the latent to the known and how well they overlay each other, overlap each other, uh, and not looking at a a bigger database to see how unique a certain set of features are. So um, there's still a lot of training that needs to be done of the field as to what these things can do and what they can't do, uh, because there there does seem to be a lot of misunderstanding uh, about uh, their capabilities.
4: You kind of touched on it a little bit with FRSTAT being a tool that we can use, and that's the key word is keeping that in in your mind that this is a tool and it's not necessarily going to change people's answers or or. Th- sway their confidence or things like that or use it as a crutch because it's a it's a tool that you should be using but you shouldn't be solely dependent on on that for making identifications or associations for things
0: all right thank you guys so much for sitting down and talking i appreciate you the you talking about the class and saying positive stuff about that Um, and then also you know just chatting about fingerprint stuff you know in a air-conditioned hotel room (laughs) and in meridian idaho but, uh, no, I, I think it's, it's part of, you know, our, our, what well, Glenn and I are trying to do with the podcast is, is in reaching out and, and sharing information over, uh, over the podcast airwaves. But it's also important to sometimes, you know, bring on just regular old non-podcasting latent print examiners, um, the, to, to get, cause, you know, sometimes Glenn and I have our own perspectives and we kind of get, you know, you know, talking from our, just our two limited perspectives, but, and we also bring on guests, but usually they're like, have published papers and stuff. But, um, you know, sometimes I think our listeners like to hear just from, uh, not the little people, the, the important, the, the, Im, the important people that, that, um, that are at an agency where you got a backlog, you got stuff to do, you know, you're, you got to work the case, and and that's what you spend your time doing and and uh but just hearing about what you guys think about what you guys worry about um your guys' opinions of of where our field should be headed or or could be headed or how it could be improved um i i don't know i just really like doing this so thank you guys all so much for for being on the show so thank you very much Bye all right well that was uh that was a fun night i um I really enjoyed uh, hanging out with those with that group it was uh, it was a fun night and the topics kind of just went wherever the uh the examiners that were there that night wanted to take them so uh so I thought we'd uh spend a little time just kind of wrapping up that discussion with just the two of us uh um, yeah. so we talked a bit about uh, my my class that we were, that everyone was going through, but then went into uh, APHIS candidate lists and um, you know statistical models FR stats and uh, a bunch of stuff so where, where do you want to start Glenn
1: well actually I want to start with uh, some of the the topics on exclusion since it's
0: about the okay. class but yeah, not
1: yeah, yeah. you know there's a few things that that stood out to me you know and one of the ones of course is the debate about using level one detail and you know I what, just for people that either haven't had the class, why don't you state pretty much exactly what you would say in class regarding the use of level 1 detail for exclusions?
0: I, I provide a lot of examples, um, and to to reiterate the point, that level 1 uh, isn't good enough by itself, uh, that you have to at least look for the level 2 detail to uh, to verify that that it's actually an exclusion. And that the time, especially that you spend looking for that level two or double checking that level two detail uh, definitely goes up uh, with the more distortion that you have uh, in the latent print.
1: Okay. All right. So this was something that I remember we discussed for some time on Swigfast. And the issue being, of course, is can you trust level one detail? And then we had lots of examples where Sure, you this would be fairly straightforward, and trusting the level one detail would be completely acceptable. And then, of course, there are always those one-offs, and I imagine the one-offs are a lot of the examples you have in class, too. So, you know, we I remember we had this long debate about, should we just make a, a, a rule that you can never use just level one detail to exclude, and that every exclusion should always have some level two that is considered? are are you of the some level 2 must always be considered under all circumstances viewpoint uh
0: i am and not even taking you know much longer than just even a half a second but uh first off uh, kind of the other half of that is is requiring uh level 1 so having a core delta uh but then not just that just double checking some of the minutia there so especially when you have with both of those rules if you have a level 1 a core delta present it's very quick to just you know all right i got um you know uh, a bifurcation coming off the the right arm of uh that core and then just boom 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 looking at all 10 fingers for that the uh, i i think it's worth that time
1: can can i ask this because yeah, I, I i know that you're a fan of two target groups so do you actually yep. then use two level two target groups and um, level one on all exclusions.
0: I think that is a, a, a best practice to get in the habit of, um, in the circumstances of, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a, a, a bullseye whirl and then the suspect has 10 arches, you've, uh, you've marked out your, your target group that you're going to be searching for. And then, uh, I mean, it's very easy to, you know, to rule that out, if an examiner is in the habit of looking for the two target groups to rule out each finger as you go through all 10, uh, they're just in general less likely to miss identifications rather than if they get into the habit of, oh, this is the wrong pattern, I'm just going to skip these fingers. For me, it's more about the habit uh, than about the specifics of, of you know this comparison is super obvious versus this one that's not. Does that, does that make sense?
1: No it, it, as you explained to them it, it does. I mean I, 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 I agree with what Swigfast ultimately happened to decide, which is it's always a risk. I mean if you if you use just the level one detail and you think it's relatively clear, you don't need the level two it's, but there is a, a risk that you're willing to accept a, a risk of potential error. And I, and we'll get into this in a minute. I mean, there's no doubt that as distortion creeps in, the use of level one detail is is going to contribute to erroneous exclusions. But when you have you know clear, let's say rolled fingers or her clear, undistorted latents where you've got a large amount of information that appears to be relatively unclear, other than a few one offs, generally. It's seems okay to rely on that but i mean yes i have probably some of the same types of examples that you have left slant loops looking right like right slant loops or skin damage that's
0: one of the big ones i think the the world to arch right differences you can um i don't want to come fully off of my my uh, harsh you know stance but The risk is less. Um, The risk is less and you can, um, you know, zip it, but I still think it's important to, to go slow enough that you're actually looking at some feature on each finger that you go through. Now, uh, jumping between, um, left and right loops, I would, I, I, you look, I would slow way down and look at each finger because, um, there are, Surprising examples out there where the the distortion is very subtle in the yeah. latent uh, that flips a left to a right loop.
1: Yeah, yep. No, I I I agree and have some of those examples too. It, it's it's very surprising, but you know, ha- like you said, making a a whirl look like an arch, unless there's skin damage or or such. I haven't seen those sorts of things exactly.
0: And um, if there's any kind of distortion. Where there's any kind of a uh, overlay or you know, double tap or any kind of indication of anything like that, then absolutely now it's time to look at each finger because yeah. uh, those kinds of distortions can absolutely change the pattern uh, from even from a, a world to a uh, to an arch. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I I, I guess I take a mm, more I, I, I take a, a position similar to fast that. Recognize when it's risky to rely on level one detail.
0: And and again, I'll just, just to reiterate, I, I think it's more a, a, the best habit to be in, uh, in, uh, especially if you've, if you've seen an issue with that, um, yeah. where, um, you know, you've, you've been caught, um, missing an ID here or there, uh, in verification. Yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, geez, I I feel like I need to slow down, and so I don't make this mistake. Then get into the habit of looking at all ten fingers, because it's really easy, especially on big cases with lots of people, and you're trying to just zip through a lot of comparisons, where you start skipping fingers. And if you find yourself doing that, I would I would uh, go a little, a little bit overboard the other way of uh getting to that good habit of looking at each finger at minutiae in each uh, finger on the temperate card to make sure that um, you build that habit and then maybe, uh, you know, back off a bit uh, once you feel more comfortable that you've built up that good habit.
1: Yeah, and I, and I like that explanation. Like you said, it's about habit building and practice building. That That makes sense. All right. So one of the, the other things related to that, of course, is the requirement. And I'm going to call it the requirement of having a core or delta before excluding. That's a tough one for me. I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure how much we've discussed before. Uh, I like that you brought it back to some of the white box paper, which I, I, I thought we could talk about in a moment.
0: Yeah, I, the, but the data is out there now. You know, like I, I, I've told <laughs> you in the class, it's it's been kind of, you know, good that that because you know, i started saying this before there was actually data to support it and then the data came out to support it so i was like yay <laughs> that's i guess good um but I, I think increasingly there is data to support that um that requirement
1: yeah all right so just just so the audience knows and it, obviously it was discussed in 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 there a little bit the idea that in order to exclude one must have a core or a delta otherwise you have some sort of inconclusive, perhaps inconclusive support for same source that was discussed a little bit in the episode.
0: Did you mean support for a different source?
1: Yeah, or some sort of this latent is not excludable,
0: y- yeah, so uh, th- there's I would say there's a couple of exceptions besides just the core delta, and that would be if you had like an entire uh, hypothenar, uh print that that is uh, enough information to limit where you need to be looking
1: um well and and that's it's funny you should you should say that because um you know i i'm going to some of the actual casework examples here i will we'll get to the white box data in a moment sure some of the case case examples and when we did you know this uh, case aphis application to actual cases and found actual case misses and have been tracking these in cases for some time as well, I was amazed at the number of impressions that were excluded that had core and delta. And, or, ironically, like you just said, the ones that didn't, and I thought, well, would this meet this, our entire hypotheners or theiners. But unfortunately, those were some of the ones that were being missed as well in actual casework because okay. they were looking in the wrong area. They were, you know, had them rotated wrong. They mistook a, a part of a theater for hypothener whatever it was. In the, in the white box, black box studies, you know, these impressions are placed side by side. And I understand that, you know, in casework, obviously they're not and they can be rotated multiple ways. But I'm... I'm personally not convinced that the requirement of a core delta is necessarily going to impact the 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 overall error rate that much. I, I think I think I think it will, but not that mu- not as much as, as one might expect. And, that, and it, it's hard for me to justify that given the white box data as it is, right. but I, I'm just, I'm looking at the empirical examples of the kinds of impressions. I mean, CTS 2010, for example, you have the entire joint, you have the entire distal orientation. It's clear the finger you don't have the, and the don't, orientation. But you don't, you don't have delta. Don't have, uh, you don't, but to to your point of you've got anchor points you've got the major flexion crease oh, you've right. got yeah you know you've got the orientation of the finger and all that and you have what appears to be the edge of the delta it, it's one of those where hmm does this so, does this that does that meet the you have a delta, i mean i i know looking at five out of six people that missed it most of them said you have the delta here you have the appearance of the delta but it was right. a distortion that appeared to be a delta.
0: Well, so a, a couple things there. So first off, with the looking at the white box uh, data and, and the paper that the uh, the noblest group published specifically on um, uh, on exclusions, the presence of a core delta was the only measurable item that they were looking at that had a, a significant reduction. Um, where basically the error bars didn't, you know, overlap each other. There were other things like, um, um, quality, number, quality and number of minutiae that had a, a trend, but still, even then, still the error bars, you know, would touch. So, and even there, you didn't eliminate erroneous exclusions. It only right. dropped it from. Jeez, I don't have it in front of me, but I think without a core Delta, it was like eight or 9%. And with a core Delta, it was like three. Um, so, uh, you know, that's still a, especially compared to bad IDs, a really high number, but there is a significant drop from having that core Delta. Um, and even just in dealing with uh, you know, the erroneous exclusion that I made um, a, about a year and a half ago, had both a core and a Delta. Um, and, uh, all the other ones when I was working for Arizona, even that they had that requirement, but it didn't eliminate the, uh, the errors. Obviously, there were still erroneous exclusions. And with that requirement, obviously we would, sh- we would have a core Delta in each one. Uh, but it goes beyond just that paper. There's the, uh, Newkin you know, UC, uh, I can't remember the main author on that one. Keller. That, uh, you know, in their study, the presence of a core delta was the main controlling influence. Now, there were definitely limitations to that study, but, uh, on, that affected error rate and uh, perceived difficulty and comparison time, uh, you know, all these things. Uh, and I think just, and that was followed up with another one that had a, a similar kind of finding. But, um, I think just overall, just, you know, in looking at just how long it takes to do a comparison, there's, there's just that instant. I mean, we even saw it with the most recent FBI paper um, from uh, Tom Busey with the eye-tracking stuff, uh, which was, that was just the last episode, I think, where you had you know this delay in finding where you're supposed to look without having that core delta. That that plays a big effect on things.
1: Well, they they just referred to it as context, but presumably that would include those those kinds of anchor points,
0: right? Yeah. So the um, it, going in the class though, one the other thing I think there's another thing at play, a really big important thing that comes into play, that especially was at play in that 2010 CTS test, and that is your target group being not what you expected. Yeah. Um, we have this tendency to uh, pick out uh, target groups that uh have opposing features short ridges enclosures handshakes uh crossovers if if you just ask a, and i've done this dozens of times now if you just ask a group of latent print examiners what's your favorite target group if you just have a latent print that just happens to have this thing you're going to pick it to be the target group what is that thing and they will list off those exact features uh every sure. single time sure um In the 2010 CTS test, those features looked different in the known. The short ridge looked like a, um, like a Z or an S. Um, the, uh, handshake, you know, looked like, um, opposing bifurcations instead. It was a whole bunch of features where it just so happened that the feature you would, that examiners would pick out as their choice of what to look for looked different in the known, so it, it, I what I'm thinking is that uh, you know their eyes skipped right over top of it, uh, especially going through 40 fingers and, and looking everywhere on the test, and not just having that one finger side by side. Uh, so I think it's it's then also good practice to have a second target group, especially if your first one is facing the opposite directions like that. Have something that faces the same direction, you know, two endings that face the same direction. I know it's plain and it's common and it's not as fun to look for, uh, but if the first target group is you know an enclosure and it just so happens that you're that it disappeared in your known a different target group like that would uh, would kind of overcome that miss.
1: Yeah, well. You know, I, I you you make some good points in there and you know, and you're right, you know, the data you know, I'll, I'll just cite the white box data. I've got the numbers in front of me. These are not from memory, by the way, so don't 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 get impressed. I, okay. I wrote these down. <laughs> uh, and, you know, in the white box paper the false negative error rate with the core in Delta was three point four percent. So even when there was a core in Delta, they made you know they made they had a three point four percent false negative error rate without the corn delta doubled to basically 8.7%. Now that that's pretty compelling that it reduces but of course not to not to zero. Oh no. you know and is that a significant enough difference that that explains what I'm seeing in the in, you know, in the empirical casework where you know the misses are actually happening. I'm I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm 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 eyeing that with interest, but I'm not entirely sure. the The second data point is the true negative rate. So that's the false negative error rate. This is the true negative rate. They are correct in their exclusions when they attempt exclusions, and they're from different sources. Eighty percent of the time, when the core and delta are present and 66% of the time when it's not there. So with, without core and delta, 66% of the time they give accurate exclusion decisions when when they're coming from different sources. So again, there is a difference. There's, an, there's definitely an increase. And they even make the, the point in the paper, the quote is, it's easier to exclude when you have those, the core and delta. And Or maybe it was, no, I'm sorry. That was said in the podcast episode. You guys said it was easier to exclude when you have those. And I I think think for me, part of that, again, is assessment of risk, that there is a risk that you're taking without the core and delta, but I think that can still be mitigated in, in certain ways. And I am still a huge believer that all of those little things, core, delta, two target groups, all of that. It's all good. It all sort of helps, although we don't have a good definitive study that really focuses on that. I mean, even these studies have been designed around you know, um, you know looking more at identification decisions. It yeah. wasn't until White Box 4 that was focused a little bit on reporting data for exclusions, but we haven't really designed the study around exclusions to focus solely on exclusions yet or what good policies and procedures are for that, but – uh, no,
0: I'm, I think you're right that, that we still are missing a study. Um, and it, it might be more just of, you know, what effect does, does not just telling someone taking a study, hey, follow this rule, but, um, you know, someone who's been through exclusion training, you know, what difference does that make? Hmm. Um, or, or, um, if you're operating under this rule, how does that affect your accuracy? Versus, if you're operating, um, you know, not under the rule, just under a more of a classic, just exclude when you feel that there are sufficient differences. Yeah, um, that
1: you know, uh, and I'm not sure that that in, in and of itself is is the right way either. I mean, i right, right. look, I mean, I'm I'm completely convinced that the solution here is technology, that a case Aphis Aphis technology assisted approach. Taking out of the human's hands and and using a computer to help do the searching, to me, I mean, I'm I am personally convinced it is it will have the lowest erroneous exclusion rate out there.
0: I I, I um I feel you're right that uh, well, I think in the end there's still going to be uh, this decision by the human of. When do I say exclusion because it's not this person versus I uh, – even though I haven't found it, the computer didn't even find it, but I still need more areas to look at, at from uh, this guy's impressions.
1: That, and, in, and you were making a really good subtle point that when we make exclusions on the subject, the individual right. – we're still doing some, some assessment, some, we're still making assumptions that we have the complete exemplars and we have seen all possible corresponding areas. And that, that, you're right. No technology, no computer will help with that. That is a examiner kind of. Well, unless, judgment.
0: unless we can develop a, uh, like a 3D technology that can get a complete recording of all friction ridge skin every time.
1: Oh, I see. I see your point. All right. Yeah. So use technology to ensure that the
0: exemplars are always the best. Right. Yeah, um, okay. Well. and I know that's, that's been a debate that's been going on for many, many years of whether to exclude to the card or to the person. I, I think it's obvious that it has to be to the person, uh, because excluding to just the card doesn't mean anything you know, really um, and doesn't tell the uh, customers that we're serving when we need more you know, information and our customers aren't going to understand that subtle difference and would just be confused and bewildered as to, well, why would you exclude if you might be able to ID it to the same guy? So you're saying exclusion isn't even an exclusion to this guy. That is the question that we're asking you. Uh, exclusion to just the card doesn't doesn't mean anything to us doesn't help us and is confusing to us so no i i'm
1: with you on that for sure um that 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 debate does exist although in defense of the other side i'm not on the other side but i think they the one point that they often make is yes but when it comes to toe prints and footprints you the other side our side is not always declaring oh by the way up front i made an assessment that this could not be a toe print, I could have been wrong about that assessment. It's possible from time to time examiners fail to recognize toe or planter impressions and have not even considered that as a potential source. So the exclusion could be wrong to the subject because right. I made this assumption up front. That disclaimer is not communicated to the client either.
0: Right. And and uh, I would say the answer to there is is to... Is to get you know to take that training uh, in planter impressions so that uh, <laughs> you can uh, with more accuracy recognize that. And if there's any question of whether it's not, it's from a, a toe or um, a foot uh, to hold off on the exclusion. But I mean, toes do look different than thumbs and and fingers. And yeah, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. For the true.
0: most part, um, I mean, obviously there's lots of exceptions. And if you get small enough, then you know maybe not. But in general, uh, they're morphologically quite different.
1: I'm going to withhold my opinion on that till we do <laughs> that study uh, that blindly inserts toe and planter impressions and see how often they actually get detected by fingerprint examiners. I'm waiting for that study to be done. I, That's an interesting study. Yeah, um, I'm I'm going to withhold my opinion until okay. I see it. Okay. But <laughs> I don't know if you've, you probably haven't seen any of my more recent reports, but that disclaimer about the toe print, I uh, now actually have in my report.
0: Okay. Okay. That's, I, that's, uh, you know, that, I think that's worth putting in there. That, that absolutely is. Um, it's not too common to see it, um, to see the toe impression, especially up in Minnesota. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Any more common down in Florida, but, uh, all right. Let's move on to, uh, to, uh, we've spent enough time on exclusions. Uh, well, let's move on to, uh, next, uh, next area.
1: Yeah, and and I just I, as we move on I just want to say I thought it was a really good discussion and I liked all the different points that you guys had about that and I I thought it was uh, very interesting to listen to.
0: Well, thank you. Um well we're, you know, going to be up in uh Minnesota area uh come early next year. Um I I know you usually just get enough points off teaching, but uh if you ever want to sit in on a on a class, uh I'd be I'd be glad to have you. <laughs> D- you know um, what, me me personally yeah you personally um <laughs> i well, know it was, might be fun yeah i you know anyway um all right so what's next?
1: Yeah, yeah what's next all right so the, one of the discussions about the candidate list how far down the candidate candidate lists to go yeah. and i thought you you you, you I, I agreed with all your points it really is about risk at what point you know is the, is it, the
0: juice not worth the squeeze
1: right right at what point has the risk dropped and and although you know we were just talking about risk with respect to exclusions it's it's the same thing here at what point can you stop looking knowing that every now and then maybe one in 10,000 you know there may be one at 50 but that one gets missed and i and i thought you 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 discussed that really nicely i would add one thing to that uh, discussion and your sure. point was your the agency should basically understand their system do some tests on their system track data how often you know these either reverse hits or forward hits are are hitting and at what candidate you know positions and maybe even scores I, I think that sort of data can be helpful for making those sorts of decisions there was a study out of Lausanne unfortunately it was not published in the general papers I In fact, if I recall, I think it may even be in French.
0: I was going to say, is it in French?
1: (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I I think it is. But Christoph did an English presentation, I think, of it some years ago. But uh, it's by, um, you know, call him out because uh, he was actually in a class I taught very recently over in Switzerland. His name is uh, Stefan Brodard. And he uh, did some research that basically demonstrated, it makes sense as soon as I say it, that the the number of candidates you need to look at are basically tied into and proportional to the number of minutiae that you're searching so if your latent print has 30 minutiae you know in your search you don't need to go past the first candidate i mean it'll it'll 99.9% of the time it'll be in the top candidate right. but if your latent print has 8 to 10 minutia, then your candidate list should effectively be extended a little bit. And, of course, the fewer minutia oh, that you have sense. or the discriminability of that minutiae, that is what impacts the number of candidates that you should effectively look at because it's all about competition. At some point when you're competing against potentially other similar arrangements minutia then depending on the fit, the match, the algorithms, then your candidate begins to drop down in 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 the arrangement. So as an examiner, if you're sitting in a terminal, you should look at not only the number of minutiae, but of course, do some internal assessment. Am I am I in a delta region? Am I along type lines or ridge endings out coming out of cores? Or or are my minutiae, a large number of them, distributed across a very large area of the fingerprint then you would need to only look at fewer candidates, so it's highly dependent on the minutiae of their arrangements. And not surprising, their spec- overall specificity, which increases with, of course, number of minutia. And that when you know when I read it, I went, "Yep, this is it. This this makes complete sense. It's dynamic, like everything else in, right. this, in this field. It depends on these things. But as long as we consider them, you could create some general rules or some general internal." you know metrics but he i if if i recall he actually had pretty good formula for how to calculate exactly how many people you should be looking at based on the number of minutia that you were looking at the av- you know the average configuration specificity
0: well i think that's when an agency when they upgrade or even if they're they're in a certain policy now and are looking to change They should, you know, gather all the data that they, they have had for the past few years and take a look at that. And that'd be a great thing to then to also see if they can extract from all the information that they currently have is, yeah, this is where we had hits, but how many minutiae did we have, uh, you know, matching up for all these hits that were lower down on the, uh, on the score? I would throw one caveat into that that just kind of popped in my head. What I would, Kind of making a slight adjustment is it's not necessarily the number of minutiae that you're searching, but the number of minutiae that the system finds corresponding is, is, is going to be how it, it, how many you need to go down. And you don't necessarily know that going in. So, I mean, yeah, theoretically, if you've got 30 points, it's centered on the, on the fingerprint, um, fingerprint, then you can be pretty confident that most, that your matching card since most cards have the center of a finger, your matching card in the database is going to have that information. Sure. But once you get towards the edge, you have less confidence that all 30 points are going to be represented in the, uh, in the matching 10 print record. Um, so. Yeah.
1: You're, you're totally right about that. And that's why I seem to remember. I have to go back and read it, but sure. I thought I yeah that's why I thought some of the minutiae were based on of course the zones that they're in their you know the areas that these minutia are being plotted.
0: And and like you said, you're right. If you've got the delta, then then you yeah, know that's going to you you kind of tend to want to look at more candidates than if you have a different area of the print. But um, no, that totally makes sense as overall concept, and uh, um, I think that should be part of what. You know agencies test for or look at in their data i, I well I, uh, how, uh,
1: how how about this How about something aphis vendors could do Why not absolutely. aphis vendors have dynamic list you know it will suggest the number to look at in the list based on the number of minutia where you plotted them and now I'm really shooting for the moon here, if it has some sort of expected likelihood ratio discriminability meter, you know, it can tell based on its database that, oh yeah, there's lots of lots of little configurations in, you know, deltas or along type lines where there could be some, you know, some similarity. So it could look at, of course, the separation of the scores, which would be a good indicator of that. So this yeah. is something that an algorithm in an APHIS system could do, and it could adjust the size of the lists based on, you know, some metrics and what you said it, I want the 99.9% level or the 95% level or the 99.9999% level, whatever, whatever level of confidence, it could then, it could then present to you exactly. the appropriate number of candidates.
0: And, and you can change that depending on the case severity, um, sure. and even go a step further and get the best of both worlds as, uh, when you're, you know, indicate that it, this, these two are impressions are from the same case uh, and have the the system go down behind the scenes, look 500 candidates down on both of those searches, and as long as they're from different fingers, if you get the same person that comes up anywhere on that top 500, the odds are pretty re- remote that they would just come up randomly. So bring up those people to the list as well mm. uh, just to double check. Yeah, um,
1: that's, oh, that's a nice touch.
0: So uh, you know the technology is out there, um, and just waiting for some ASUS vendor to uh, to throw out to you know further improve you know how well their uh, their matchers work for the user. Um, well, so I mean it's it,
1: not even that it's it's the data analytics after the yeah. matches are being done. It's how it presents the data to you
0: instead of just here's the top look you know all right you do human stuff now you know it. it, it it's uh, that sabermetrics kind of thing of 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 giving just that little little, little bit little bit better a you know, little bit better a little bit better uh, that lets us solve more cases.
1: And 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 so the and one one last thing I thought I I was interesting in your discussions was the discussion, of course, on statistical models. And you know I you know I've been. Listening to people discuss models for years and their reactions to it, you know, as either a fly in the wall or as an instructor, or you know, in in some various capacity. So the the one comment that I've heard over the years, and man, I've been hearing it and hearing it, is the, well, before we implement these, a whole lot of research has to be done on these. And you jumped in and went, well, yeah, some people have been actually researching this for a long time. Whenever I hear that, you know, I. I've I really listened critically to what they're saying, but what I'm actually often hearing them say is I would need a whole lot of training before I felt comfortable using this particular model. Right. Because like, like you said in the the mail that jumped in, I can't remember his name, but the, the one guy who seems to know a little bit about the models was saying, well, you know, even Henry said that he's researched it, research and research it, but it evolved so quickly and a new model, a new something will come along and there'll be new research on that. So at what point, you know, is there sufficient research on this that the kinds of research that need to be done are more well, we now need to figure out about how you are going to use this. And that's different than understanding the math of the model or showing the, you know, the effectiveness of the model, validating the math and everything behind it. I think the bigger issue will be Once the human gets behind it, we need to do some tests to show that you can actually use this thing correctly. And what will you do with this information? So, you and I I think you said something along those lines what I would call the end user validation how is the end user going to interpret and apply this? And I think it's less about the statisticians having to do more research and more about the training that the examiner will need. And that's usually what, I, what I'm what i picking up from people saying that is I don't know that, that we need them to spend years and years and years doing more research as opposed to getting examiners training to understand what actually is happening with these models and how to use them appropriately.
0: Yeah, you know, so I, I think there's there's two parts of that. One is just from the, the the average examiner perspective, there is still some confusion as to if we're there yet, you know, that there's, there's this idea that there's going to be this magical moment when we're there and it's, it's usable, you know, there's something out there that's usable. And there's been a lot of research, uh, a lot of different groups, but you still have some disagreements as to whether this is ready, you know, um, Some of the limitations of our stat, uh, and then even, um, which we've talked about a lot, uh, on the show. And then even, uh, you know, Cedric Newman talking about how score based models, you know, are lacking in certain ways. So from the, the researcher, like statistician side of things, there seems to be still some work that they're, you know, progressing on and, and limitations that they're discussing. Amongst the math parts of things. Um, but like I said in the, in, you know, earlier in the episode, kind of what I was getting at is we're already at uh, 99.8% positive predictive value when we say ID. That's pretty damn high. Now throw in a model for us to use on that. And the hope is that it goes up. So you know, we're providing even better information or at least stays the same. So we're just providing the same amount of accuracy with now this more informed result. It would really kind of suck if our accuracy went down because we started using the model. And while that's probably not going to happen, it'd be really nice to know that that's not happening um, before we all really jump on board with this because that'd just be a kind of, you know, a real big, you know, kind of problem that would, if we they did that research, you know, five years after we all started using something like this. Um, and a big, you know, kind of, oh crap kind of moment if that actually did happen. So, um, I think that's an important part that hasn't really come out yet. Um, and I, but I also think that that's an important part of selling it to the community is saying, you know, hey, use this and you're going to be even better than you are now.
1: Yeah. I mean, Of course, whatever model we go with or, you know, an agency decides to adopt, those are some things they, you know, obviously might want to test in its inclusion. I did, you know, a study in 2012 where I gave a group of examiners tools that included, you know, included the use of a model and uh, compared to those that did not have the model compared to groups that had different tool consensus feature maps. And found that the group that had the model and the group that didn't have the model performed really about the same. I mean, the error rates were roughly the same. Yep. And uh, I, I, I don't know that it's going to change drastically. I think what will be interesting is when we get, when, like in the episode, you talked about opening up that inconclusive box, you know, those more marginal ones. That's going to get a little interesting, I think, because examiners are going to have to shift their perspective and realize that even a model will present a high likelihood ratio in a close non-match because they're close non-match because they have similar characteristics and that you could have real marginal impressions indicating they might be from this person when in fact they're not and that's gonna that's gonna be uncomfortable for examiners, and they're gonna use that as a proof. Well, we shouldn't be using this stuff at all, and we shouldn't be going in this box. And my argument is, well, even without the model, people are already there and could easily present inconclusives with features in similar, you know, similar arrangements that are from two different people. I don't know that the model is the
0: problem here, right? No, I, I think that's a that's a good point in in um. It, it also kind of depends on how far we go down this this hole of, of, you know, are we going to start using the model for three and four pointers? Um, right. Uh, in, in
1: the way that DNA has. and right. DNA mixtures are using three to five to six sometimes alleles that give ridiculously low evidence in of 100. inclusion. Right. Right. Well, I just read a DNA report that was one in six the other day.
0: Oh, yeah, fun. <laughs> Well, well, I but, mean, it's, it's ABO blood typing. Exactly. But- that's, that's, that's exactly it. That's, it's not like we've, we haven't been down this road. People are like, holy moly, we can't. It's like, well, we've been there. That's the right. way things were just a few years ago. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think those are all good points. And one of the things was we, we do need to understand things better. Um, like I said earlier, uh, in, in the discussion with those examiners, you know, I was, when I was at the California conference, uh, got into a discussion, with oh, yeah. a very experienced examiner who uh, you know knows a lot about the science uh, of fingerprints, knows a lot about uh, statistics, and ha- had to correct uh, that examiner on what FR stat does and doesn't do, and um, if if an examiner like that has a confusion about it, then it's widespread. And I would say, then most examiners, uh, except for those listeners to this show. <laughs> uh, oh. um, you know, probably don't fully understand what FRStat is or is not doing. That it's not using a large database to compare against. It is only measuring uh, overlapability, um, yeah. and it, it's good at that. But it's just doing that. It's not doing yeah. the uh, denominator part of it, what you would think of as a uh, uh, as a likelihood ratio. Yeah,
1: but that to me again comes down to. Training and less about the research, right? Ne- oh, absolutely needed to be done.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. One, one last thing oh. I want to circle back around to that I forgot sure. to mention earlier, with when we we're talking about exclusions, was the support for a different source. Um, I think the more I think about it, the more that feels like a great opportunity that basically no one's using right now. We've you know OSAC's kind of thrown it in there to balance out the um, the the conclusions that we can give. But that's a great place, in my opinion, to stick all those, quote-unquote, exclusions that don't have cores or deltas.
1: I, I might be behind that. I'm, I might be able to get behind that. And, uh, you know, upcoming episode, we were going to discuss these, uh, these conclusions. Right. So, yeah, you know, stay tuned. I think we'll dig into that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a perfect solution for um, giving the information of not him, but not going all the way... Acknowledging the risk that's there. So, with that, um, the, uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, and uh, head to our website wpodcast.com We've been talking with some people about maybe getting some podcast merch out there. So, just keep your ears open. We'll we'll uh, we'll give you updates as things develop. Uh, follow us right at, in time
1: for Christmas. Yeah, uh,
0: at double loop pod. Follow us on Twitter. Eric at RayForensics.com Glenn at Services.com. Glenn's got classes coming up. Go to Associates.com. I've got a bunch of classes coming up. Head to RayForensics.com for uh, all the dates and times for all of those. Uh, the opinions that we express are ours and not anybody that we work with or for. And is that everything, Glenn? I think so. Alright. Have a good week, guys.
1: Bye, everybody. Have a good week.